So, good evening, everybody. It's, um, it's Sunday, it's five o'clock, and we're here at Emmaus Way. And um, my name's Tim Carlos. With me here is Casey Toll and uh, Skylar Gudas. We're going to play you a song from Nick Lowe. It's called There Will Never Be Any Peace. guitar for their house. That's what I understand. It's a fine aspiration. 
Welcome to Emmaus Way. My name is Ben. I'm on staff here. We're glad you're here tonight. Thanks to Tim, Skyler, Casey for a thoughtful start to the evening. Um, Tim actually introduced me to this Nick Lowe song this week. Um, and I was struck by how carefully it seems to juggle some very different perspectives on what God and peace have to do with each other. Um, many of which we might find problematic. God is distant from our struggle for peace. God is an imminent but external actor in that peace. But I think as a community captivated by the gospel, which is how we like to describe ourselves, I think we can look at this, this vision of God in, interacting in our striving for peace and say that there's something here about God at the conference table, a vital partner with us, but someone without whom we cannot proceed in and towards peace. That, that starts to sound like something that's very familiar to us in the way we talk about where, what the gospel is and how it might uh, live into our work here together and, and enduring through the week, and hard pivot, as always, to the kids. I think Joel has something he wants to say, an announcement about kids stuff, and then we'll do it. Two real quick announcements. Um, one is we will probably be doing a materials-making um, workshop soon, so I think Caleb might be organizing that, so um, look forward to that. And then also we're actually doing, I'm hosting a training at Immaculate Conception Church uh, in CGS program we use, the Montessori-based program. So if anyone's interested, contact me. I think I sent an email through the Google. Okay, so look there. There's information. Um, it's great for parents or anyone that's interested, even if you're not interested in actually working with kids. A lot of people that I know have done it as a spiritual retreat, and you just kind of engage um, in ch- uh, children's spirituality and learn a lot um, by being like a child. So... Let me know if you're interested, and thanks. Thank you, Joel. Joel's one of the many folks that works back with our kids every week, so we're not seeing them um, through most of our gathering. But we've done this community song together in this space to try and affirm that our kids are very much a part of what we do. And I think in singing this song, which is kind of newish to us between now and Advent, we feel like we're kind of singing this together and reminding ourselves how our aspirations for our kids are also aspirations for us and how we kind of need all of us if we're ever going to be righteous, true, joyful, courageous, etc. So I'm going to try and start us on this, since Mark's not here this week. Um, But please help me. May you grow up to be righteous. May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous. Stand upright and be strong, may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy, may your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of change shift. May your heart always be joyful, may your song always be sung. May you stay forever Kids, go forth and multiply. No? I thought that was part of our master plan around here. See how many babies we can produce in the next six months. I'm doing my part, y'all. Okay, so yeah, a more traditional announcements, other than a, you know, sort of inauguration of a baby boom. 
We do have Ecclesia tonight. I'll let one of our lay leaders, whichever one I can find first. Yeah, Laura, tell us about that. So So we'll, we'll adjourn here around 6, which is about half an hour early for us than usual. But um, yeah, by doing that, it gives us time to bring in food. Everybody get some food. You're welcome to stay. Whether or not you want to stay for the meeting, stay, grab some food. We'll start that around 6.15 and have you out by 7.15 and with a meal. So yeah, that's the plan. Um, anything else? Really? Yeah. yeah. On Saturday, October 22nd, Durham Can um, is having souls to the polls. Um, so we will be, be able to look up for information, but mark your calendar Saturday, October 22nd at 10 for a nonpartisan March gathering of folks going to vote um, together. It's the first Saturday of early voting. Um, in Emmaus Way, we have committed 15 persons. So even if you want to vote, if you are like me and really geek out on voting on election day, we're just meeting like bodies. Like they're wanting to make kind of have 200 to 300 folks gather. So please come. That'd be lovely. We'll be on the lookout for more info. If anybody has any other pressing announcements, stop here right now, because I'm about to start to pivot to say, being just an hour tonight, Molly just gave me a great pivot to what I would want to point out briefly are really two great songs. These are both Tim College recommendations. I think they're both fabulous for this week. Um, having, having Kurt Rhodes with us and trying to continue this conversation about being a boundary community um, and, and turning that really to a global political lens with some pretty broad conflict boundaries that feel very embedded. These songs as a pair kind of reminded me, I don't know how many of you have seen the Terrence Malick film Tree of Life, but it starts off with this, um, this recitation about the way of nature and the way of grace and how these two competing ways of, of being in the world seem to set up a path through which we all have to choose to walk. And I think that's kind of what we have in these two songs. We have the winner takes it all. That's the way of nature, dominant, forceful, um, zero-sum game. And then you have this beautiful song about what it is to find grace inside the life of another person and to hold things in tension in a much much kinder, gentler sort of approach to the world. So I think this sets up, I'm not sure exactly where you guys are going tonight, but some broad polls um, for the ways that very intimate things become very global when we when we live them out. So yeah, Tim, come and lead us in these songs. Okay, yeah, thanks, Ben. Thanks for having having us here. This is um, a slice of Swedish folklore for you. I don't want to talk about the things we've gone through. Though it's hurting me Now it's history I played all my cards And that is what you've done too There's nothing more to say There's no more ace to play 
The winner takes it all The loser's standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny I was in your arms Thinking I belong there I figured it made sense Building me a fence Building me a home Thinking I'd be strong there But I was a fool Playing by the rules The gods may throw the dice Their minds as cold as ice And someone way down here Will lose someone dear The winner takes it all The loser has to fall It's simple but it's plain And why should I complain But tell me does she kiss Like I used to kiss you Does it feel the same When she calls your name Somewhere deep inside I know I must miss you But what can I say The rules must be obeyed The likes of nearby Spectators of the show Always staying low The game is on again A lover or a friend A big thing or a small The winner takes it all If it makes you feel sad And I understand You've come to shake my hand I apologize If it makes you feel bad Seeing me so tense No self-confidence it all The loser standing small Beside the victory That's her destiny The winner takes it all The loser standing small Beside the victory That's a destiny
So, moving on. Um, Roddy Frame uh, wrote this next song. Uh, it's called Hymns of the Grace. Roddy Frame's a, a Scots singer-songwriter. Uh, started his career with a band called Aztec Camera and has been pulling out albums and songs consistently for the last 30 years. It's one of my favourite songwriters. So this is called Hymns of the Grace. seen behind the screen that severs life from art and do you see the same as me completeness come apart and who am I to qualify the contents of your heart it's the simple understanding of the way you Hand it over and hold on to it too With the lightness of a feather It's the web that ties together what is true the peace, welcome our guest tonight, and just acknowledge that we've been really lucky as a community. We've had some incredible guests as a part of our dialogue. We've been dialoguing at, at multiple length about what does it mean to be a community of faith that intentionally engages difference. 
And in some ways, that's a, a whole different way of being. There's a, another way of being that would say we, we engage difference, but we engage it on our own terms. So you're, you're welcome to come into our midst and be as we are because you are welcome. But there's something entirely different about saying, as we've been saying, that in many ways, Emmaus Way is a, a borderland community, a community that seeks very intentionally to um, flee from the safety of the center and juxtapose ourselves around those who speak powerfully into uh, what does it mean to live in this world? What does it mean to live hopefully in this world? What does it mean for us as people who are seeking to embody the gospel in our life in this world? And so it's been a um, really powerful. Diane Lipset last week was incredible speaking about uh, sexuality and this kind of borderland of bodies that is uh, deeply complex and challenging for, for all of us living physically in the world that we live in. And so it's uh, been really exciting to do that. And my friend Kurt Rhodes is here who, uh, Kurt, how long have I known you? Maybe 25 years? Or more. Or more. So, uh, which dates us dramatically. Uh, but Kurt is the founder of QuestScope International, which Chancey worked for for how many years? Three years or so. And they do, um, you'll hear about this, but an incredible work in the Arab world in terms of, of truly engaging the, the tagline so that the last would be first is embodied in everything that they do. And, and they do it in places where um, you would be hard to imagine uh, the, the breadth of their ministry. And so, Kurt, I'm really excited to have you with us. Uh, you have been a forward thinker, too. When I first met you in the 90s, I thought, my goodness, that guy's doing stuff that people haven't even thought about. How do you how do you do grace and peace and hope and education and kindness and mercy in regions of the world that are divided dramatically by uh, by religion? And uh, one of the most amazing trips of my life was to spend a week with your staff and with you, just observing and listening and writing about what you did, and and to see people who we hear in our own kind of media lives as entirely opposed to each other, uh, and see those differences embodied throughout your staff and. The, the hope and the work that they did, the honesty, and it's just Curtis, somebody that I think we all should know and would want to know, and the work of QuestScope is something that when I reflect on it, it often tells me, you know what, there are things that I've dismissed that are not possible, that QuestScope makes me think, no, actually, that is indeed possible, because some have tried it, so I've been really excited to have you tonight, Jim's going to, uh, Jim, who's known Kurt even longer and better than me, is going to dialogue with him tonight, uh, but please stand up and greet each other, offer each other the peace of Christ. Uh, it, and, it's yeah, yeah, and, and I will bring us back together very quickly. So stand and greet each other. Okay, hey, thanks everybody. Since we have a guest tonight and we're on Ecclesia schedule, um, let's uh, bring it back together. Also, want to quickly say if you're new with us, haven't been around, uh, Ecclesia is a great opportunity to see how our community operates. You're very, very invited. You're invited to consume food and leave, or if you're new with us, consume, hang out, and hear life in a man's way. Uh, so, anyway, Jim, I'm going to give you the mic, my friend. Hey, folks. So, do we have two live mics here? Two. Kurt, nothing's yours. And this, I'm not supposed to do a drop mic, right? No, no, no drop mics. And if you need a table, we can make that into a table. I have no idea what drop mic means, actually. I can show you, but okay. I don't think they'd like that. Um, so, we, we have 25 minutes to go into some immensely complex discussions here. 
we're only going to be able to maybe not even scratch the surface. This is just going to be a little bit of a teaser of some thoughts because this is like um, not quite a Christian Muslim dialogue, but we have with us somebody who has. He means it's Christian pagan. Who has lived in, in um, Jordan for a long, long time. Do you want to give me a number? Well, Middle East, 35 years. Jordan, 25 years. Okay. So I, 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 looked at, um, I looked at my Google Maps before coming up here, and I think I can tell you the countries that go all around Jordan. So I'm going to start with Saudi Arabia, um, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Israel. How did I do? No Lebanon, but Israel. No Lebanon. So it doesn't touch Lebanon. Okay. But for those of you who are geographically challenged, that now kind of gives you a place of where this is. And, and um, America, official America, political America, has a stake in Jordan because it's considered the relatively stable, relatively Western-friendly country in that whole region. So there's, there's a lot that is going on. Kurt, as you've just heard, has been in Jordan for 25 years. I, I can't... I, we don't have time to go into all that he has done in that time, so I'm going to start close to the end of the story and tell you that, like Tim, I visited Kurt a couple of years ago, and uh, during that time went to a refugee camp. So I was in Amman, drove up towards Syria, and just before getting to the border, there is a big camp there, and went through the various gates and checks you have to go through and got into the camp and Kurt had set up some of his people there to talk with me and show me around. Kurt, I'm going to ask you to describe just what, what is the work of QuestScope in that particular setting? Just in the camp? Yep. Um, in the camp you have 85,000 people in two square kilometers. That's like all of Chapel Hill plus 25,000 people in two square kilometers without electricity, without water, without sanitation, without streets, and without police. What would we do to each other if we found ourselves in that circumstance? For the United Nations, th there's a bit of a personal opinion in here too, okay? Go for it. For the, for the United Nations, they have an excellent handle on the 20th century. Okay? So refugees are people that you put inside of a cage and you give them food and you give them water occasionally and you give them uh, occasional things. So refugees are a problem for the UN to be solved. For us, refugees are the resource for solving that problem. So by taking that stance, inside that camp of 85,000 people, we have our space which is probably uh, two Keenan football fields, you know, stadiums, that is also surrounded by a chain link fence, and it's demarked as Questcope space. But inside there, we have invested in refugees for the past five years. So we have, uh, we actually have a Ponzi scheme. Are you guys okay with Ponzi's? It goes like this, you know, and the guys at the bottom feed money up to the guys at the top except there's no money involved. But we have 30 or 40 key, we call them mentor leaders, 
who supervise and support 300 or 400 mentors who mentor 3,000 or 6 to 6,000 youth. So in our program, we have embedded in it the development of leadership by Syrian Arabs as volunteers with their own people. What we do in terms of activities, we have a media training and communications unit that helps young Syrians do um, DVDs for competition and international competition uh, for communication about the crisis. One 14-year-old boy won an award in New York for his DVD. He can never go to New York, but his DVD can. We have um, gender-based violence training that is done all by Syrians. We have um, a CCL project, Children in Conflict with the Law. So a young Arab male with gelled hair and a fake black leather jacket standing on a street corner at night is not a beneficiary, he's a threat. So everyone funnels these young men off to us because they are children in conflict with the law. They're dangerous. About as dangerous as you and I were when we were that age. Um, I did probably more gel than you, okay? Um, so th these are the kinds of things that we do that absolutely positively need Syrian leadership. And therefore, guess what happens? Syrians lead. So you mentioned the, you mentioned Syrian Arabs. And I gave a, a, a verbal map of the area where you are. There's a lot of mixes of various cultures, various religions. There's Syrians, there's Saudi Arabians, there's Iraqis, etc. How do Syrian Arabs, how, how would you distinguish a Syrian Arab, perhaps a Syrian Arab worldview, as different from other Arabs in that area? A Syrian Arab worldview. After I tell you this, are you going to have to shoot me? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you later. <laughs> I think, all right, think about that. Um, I can give you the, the backstory for a Syrian Arab worldview. Syrian Arabs have, been, have lived under a regime that has one idea, and it's their idea, and it's the only idea. And it was called the Ba'ath Party. In case you're not up on the Ba'ath Party, you're up on Lenin, right? So they modeled their, their, uh, their role in government after Lenin and the Bolsheviks. And so they, they tolerate no external opinions. So when you grow up and your parents grew up under that and your grandparents, it happened around them, then you learn to be very careful and you don't have a public opinion. You have private opinions. And so the public space is for the party and the other space is for you. So Syrians grow up. The government was never really to be trusted, but you had de dealt with it because it was your government. Political position was never to be trusted because it was always going to manipulate power. And there's only one. Um, because of the deep cultural roots, because Syria had a couple of symphony orchestras, um, Syrians spoke French, they spoke uh, English, they spoke Arabic, and their Arabic is superb. Okay? 
So you have a, a, a people, and they are the consummate business people in the Middle East. So you have very confident, self-assured uh, people who basically had uh, a slight bit of economic enfranchisement and no political action. So all you needed was a little bit of sawdust and a match. That's where Syrians came from. When I visited you and I went up to the camp, I was treated with tremendous hospitality. I sat in a circle of eight or ten people who were all of the camp, who were all working in your mentoring program. How do do you think... In what ways did they hold back? Do you, you weren't there, but in what ways do you think they might have held back to see this Westerner step in? Given the tentativeness that you've just described, would, would they have held back with this stranger sitting in a circle with them? Um, the, thing, the thing that you are prepared for is you want to know what the authority over you wants you to do. So the authority said, you will make Jim feel very welcome. <laughs> and you will answer his questions, and you won't complicate the answers for him. Okay, So they were very clear. The authority is uh, definitely on their side. Okay, And, of course, they knew your history with me. Hmm. And they knew that you, you, know, you came from another country called California. Did they know I was safe? Of course they knew you were safe. I wouldn't send people to them that weren't safe. Okay. That would be a breach of trust on my side, right? I'm going to send you somebody who's not safe. Couldn't happen. Okay. Just a, a, a word of pause. I want you to begin thinking about questions you might have for Kirk, because I'm going to allow some time for that. So we'll be there in a few minutes, but not just yet. So, Kurt, um, are you okay with my back to you? In the Middle East, I could never do this. But. <laughs> You're going to be always offending somebody I know. here. Um, so now I want to hear about when you take those Syrian Arabs, let's overlay Islam on that now. And how does Islam, what, what, what does that add in that layer that you've just described? Uh, it's, for 1,400 years, it's been a deep cultural richness. Okay. Um, maybe 15 years ago, I was in Cairo at a conference on street kids in the Arab world. And unexpected to me, I was actually the moderator of the conference, which I learned the, e the evening, you know, and the, the conference starts the next day, so I learned that evening. Because they had to have somebody who spoke Arabic that the Lebanese could understand and the Egyptians could understand and the Moroccans could understand, and I was the only guy who had simple enough Arabic pronounced in a proper, you know, I was taught Arabic. So suddenly I became the moderator. So the thing goes for a whole week, and sleepless nights, all that kind of stuff, putting the stuff together. At the end, the convener of the conference, who is a British Muslim from uh, Bangladesh, said, we would like to ask you a question. Actually, it's not my question, it's their question. And it's personal, and you don't have to answer it. And it's not my question, okay? To get where she's going with this. So I said, you can ask me any question you like, because I can also lie. <laughs> so ask away. She said, well, it's not my question, okay? And, and it's the answer is, but there's some people here, not all of us, but some of us, 
are you a Muslim? And I said, well, then I went into my Scarlett O'Hara mode. Why, sweetheart, what in the world are you talking about? She said, um, well, we just wonder if you're a Muslim. Well, I said, what would make you think that? Well, some of the way you talked, your mannerisms, the way you dealt with us, the way you talked to, to Muslims. I said, well, I think you're misreading something. I think you're reading Arab as Muslim. Certainly, I have adjusted to Arab culture. I'll never be one, but I've got, you know, I'm more like one than when I came, right? So I said, to be an Arab, you could be a Christian. Yes, yes, no, we have no problem with that. You know, it was their question, it's not my question. Because people think it's very sensitive. There are Arab Christians, there are Arab Muslims, and my butcher in Beirut in 1981 was a Jew. His father and grandfather had owned the butcher shop and they all spoke Arabic. So it kind of messes up your head, right? Having said that, a lot of the um, practices of Islam grew out of the practices of the Christian church at the time of the prophet. So a lot of the, uh, in the name of God, we begin talking Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, were Christian ways to start stuff. And putting the peace on people when you leave, Assalamu alaikum, all this stuff. These were originally Christian greetings because they were spiritual greetings, right? So when you're a new uh, faith come to earth, you adopt a lot of these things. The structure of the mosque and the dome reflects the Orthodox churches with the dome and inside it's blue because it's the heavens. So there's so much in common between Christians and Muslims when you're not talking about Western Christians. We have a different history with Islam. It's called the Crusades. So we, we're, we have a whole different idea than an Arab Christian would have about Islam. No, you need to ask me again so I can give a shorter answer because I just gave the context. <laughs> so if you take the Syrian Arab that you described yes, and now we overlay Islam on top of that, what information does that add for us to understand that person? Well, some people will be uh, bell curve. At one end you get people who, they don't really care what you are. They don't care what they are. Other end of the bell curve, those people are very serious about who they are, and they're serious about who you're not, okay? And then everybody in the middle is, a, is, a, is able to accommodate differences. And Islam... Uh, uh, Islam uh, gives support to that position. Especially Muslims who are Sunni. Especially urban Sunnis. Is that what we're talking about amongst the Syrian refugees that are mostly Sunni? Mostly Sunni, but not all. Um, rural Sunnis are like uh, any Baptists in here. I'm a Baptist, so I can criticize Baptists. Or I was a Baptist. In a previous life, I was a Baptist. Okay. Um, if you go to a rural Southern Baptist church, it's going to be a special experience never been to one, but I hear about it. Okay. And, uh, but if you go to Chapel Hill Binkley Baptist, 
It's not going to be like the rural Baptists, okay? So Sunnis are like that. The downtown Sunnis and the rural Sunnis. The downtown Sunnis are um, traders, international travelers, and there is a stream of thought in Sunni Islam for people who have that background called delay. And delay, ajal. Delay means that only God knows what your relationship with him is like. Therefore, I can't judge you as to whether you have a good one or not. Only God knows. So you just see what happened? An enormous amount of tolerance and space exists because only God knows. I don't even really know about me, right? So this, this um, uh, thought, set of thought patterns, because it's not a, 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 a line of jurisprudence in Islam. It's not one of the four major um, understandings of theology. But it's a space. So Islam is full of space. Because Christians who are Arabs and Christians who are Kurds and Christians who are all kinds of things have lived beside each other for 1,400 years. So let me take that. First of all, delay is an Arabic word, not an English word, right? Because I'm uh, hearing it with my English ears. Yeah, delay is English, but the, oh, it's okay. a translation. So it yeah, it means okay. wait. All right. Pause. Because that's it. what I was doing with it in my head. I just yeah, thought, okay. delay. Uh-huh. Um, that would be a French word, delay. Um, so, Kurt, let's get personal now. We've been <laughs> joking. Okay, we've I been, can lie. I can we, lie. We've been kind of theoretical, geographical, theological, sociological. Now we want to get personal. I want to know about you going to Jordan as a Christian. Have you, has your faith been shaped? by Muslims? And if so, can you give me an example? You mean like a person that shaped me? Or a thing inside me that shaped? Um, If there is a person that you know that shaped you, let's hear that. Um, I'm a North Carolina boy. I grew up between Charlotte and Concord in red mud country. And in, in areas that the, the clan had a lot of activity. So you know, you know my roots, you know where I grew up, and the kinds of thinking that went on in um, Mallard Creek Presbyterian Church. Our church had a slave gallery, because it, you know, it was a, a slave-holding community back in the day. So I come to Christ, and I discover that there's an, an enormous liberty in Christ, And so I could say in one way, I've spent most of my life finding out that the the borders were were even broader than I thought. And you think, okay, finally, I got this. I understand this border. Then it's not there. So that's the general tone of my life. Getting to the Middle East, um, where people are different. You know, they're not from Mallard Creek. And they didn't go to Dorada High School, you know. Um, and they didn't even go to Chapel Hill. I don't know about does, Chapel Hill doesn't exist. So they think differently and they are different, and yet they also aren't different. 
They're loyal as friends. We were bombed together, uh, shot at together, sniped at together. And you discover that, you know, this guy can have my back. I can have his back. And what really bonds us is the better Christian that I am, the better it is. Just like the better Muslim that he is, the better the relationship gets. One night I was, we, we did work in the south of Lebanon, which in the 80s was the beginning of the um, hijacking of TWA airliners and pulling American soldiers off the planes and shooting them. So in the south of Lebanon, you couldn't, um, you couldn't do projects. So we had maternal and child health care projects. So our organization was the only one that the Canadian government would trust that they would give money to and we would send reports and what we said was really true. So my partner in this was a Sunni accountant from Beirut. We were deep into things one night and he pauses, leans back, blows his pipe smoke in my face and says, we can't go on like this. It's Carlo O'Hara about again. Whatever in the world do you mean? He said, uh, either you have to become a Muslim or I have to become a Christian. We can't go on like this. Think, 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 think. It's 2 a.m. in the morning. Think, think, think. I said, well, actually, I think that God will tell us, tell one of us that the other one is right. Are you okay with this? There's <laughs> more smoke. And he goes, I'm okay with that. I can live with that. So we went back to working on the on the projects. That was a node. There have been more nodes since then. And his idea of spirituality is a bit of a challenge to me from time to time. Um, apparently, God did tell one of us who was correct. Okay? And that's just, been, just one of you? Just one of because it only <laughs> took one, okay? Because then that one tells the other person. So, Lots of stuff has happened, but it's like, it's like uh, you know the old Irish proverb where the wind and the sun are having a fight, and the, sun's, the wind says, I can make that guy take his coat off, so he blows and blows and blows, and the guy pulls his coat closer. So the sun says, well, watch me. So he just radiates on him, and the guy eventually takes his coat off. So these are some of the, the metaphors for the way that I've learned to live in the Middle East because of hanging out with Muslims like the guy who blows pipe smoke in my face. And how were you changed by him? I mean, more than I was just describing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was I changed by him? I mean, what, 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 I, what I heard you say is that you two had this encounter where one of you needed to change. Um, I want to know what, if you have found anything in Islam that as you surveyed and knew your Christianity, you found that you had been missing something. And there was something in there that informed your own Christian faith. I have to give, we don't have time to go into the thing, so I'll give you the name of a book and I'll reference myself yes. to that book. It's called Islam Reconsidered. It's back in print on Amazon. Islam Reconsidered. And the things that I, that I discover in Islam are the struggle of a man, of the Prophet, to try to bring his people back to the worship of one God. 
Okay? There's a, a, a verse in the Quran that says, Oh Muhammad, you are a warner. The guy who gives warnings, right? You are a warner in a clear Arabic tongue for people to turn back to the worship of one God. So when you see these, these things that you've, you've kind of skated over them, it's like skating on ice on a pond, you know, and there's a lot of stuff underneath. So you skate over that stuff, and then you realize that other, another, Islam, another religion like Islam also has those things under its water. And so what are those things that we actually shared in common? So finding those things in Islam was really encouraging and enlightening and liberating. I want to open this to you now. Do anybody have a question they want to ask of Kurt? I'm in church, so I can't lie here, so this is your chance. We first have to tolerate a moment of silence until the courage is found, and then... This morning, Kurt, I heard you, Kurt, this afternoon, I heard you uh, the term phrase, destruction to construction. Um, destruction to construction about a possible bottom line of the social impact that you can have on the youth over there. Could you unpack that a little bit more, just for what that means and how that comes into play for your work, West Coast's work? So, moving from destruction to construction. Yeah. I think the context for that was somebody asked me about young people, young Arabs, stuff like that. And of course, we're all familiar with the idea that if you tell a kid he's rotten, and he's mean, and he's no good, what's he likely to become? Rotten, mean, and no good. So to take young people and help them uh, in the continued formation of their life, you you not only verbally tell them the good, the good, but you give them a chance to practice it. So that was, that is a lot of what we do with young people. Um, commercial, we're the only organization in Jordan that the police, for example, go to because with um, uh, delinquent youth, or could be delinquent youth, which is everybody who's a male, right? Um, we're the only guys that they go to because they know that we, we, can, we can take them in and accommodate them. So moving from destruction to construction with people. Oh, I'm blown away by the stuff you've described and how amazing it is. Where do you find the courage to keep going back and, and doing that day after day? My courage is so puny compared to the courage of Arabs who live there and cannot leave. You know, um, as one of, as our leader for Syria said in a DVD piece that you saw today, he said, "This is my country, and I love my people, and my people love each other, and so of course we will stay." So when you when you when you sit beside somebody like that, what would you do? You take your hat off to them and say, oh, can I hang around? <laughs> I'd like to stay too. I'm sure you've noticed that in our current presidential election, mm -hmm. there have been some words said about Muslims. 
and <clears throat> which, which might be evidence of a, maybe not a prevailing sentiment, but one that gains traction with a certain segment of the population. And there is a strain of sentiment in, in American um, social life that is um, really puts Muslims in the, in the category of other. In Emmaus Way, we have been trying to learn how to consciously seek out borderlands where, um, you know, I'm imagining, to, just to, to paint a picture of a borderland, I'm imagining being on the outside of a refugee camp with others, inside, Syrians inside, and having, you know, willfully walking up to that chain-link fence and talking through it to somebody who is at that border. Can you give me some idea of a skill that I might be well advised to develop if I want to be able to learn from somebody who I might otherwise be tempted to think of as other and to close my ears to them? Of course, if I do this really well, I'll get next year's Nobel Prize, right? <laughs> okay. Just works. These are. Jim is a terrible question asker. It could, the answer could go on for days. Um, I think a key question to, that I always ask myself is, where is this person coming from? What is it that enables them to say this, or feel this, or feel this way? All right. And uh, now I will illustrate something outside of just a personal relationship, but. The, um, the driving ideology of ISIS, you call it ISIS also, ISIS, ISIL, or Daesh in Arabic. The driving ideology is about redemption. That we can redeem the world if we are just violent enough. It's called redemptive violence. If we are violent enough, we can change the world. Now, there's a lot of backstory to that, but they have a written manifesto called The Management of Savagery, which I recommend that you read. And the idea is we will be more savage than the West could possibly be back until we make them destroy their own society through savagery against us and against their own people. So it's very clearly outlined, and one of the most significant demographics to go after are young people, because between the ages of 15 and 20-something, you'll do things that you would never do again, because your mind is being rewired, right? So if we were going to say, okay, where are these people coming from, I would like to know where you're coming from, if you have that. Uh, ideology, theological ideology of redemption through violence. And then I would ask myself, so what is my theological ideology that could be as strong as that theological ideology? Because we're going to have to have that, guys. You can't confront an ideology that says we will redeem through violence by thinking that we can run an ambulance at the base of a cliff, that we can 
produce, you know, hand out food. It, that's not the issue. That's not going to, that's not what motivates the hearts of people. Well, I may ask tough questions, Kurt, but you give great answers. <laughs> so um, I want to thank you for indulging these questions. And again, I, I half apologize to you all that we couldn't go deep into much, but, um, but we have, we have uh, skimmed the surface a little bit and it has allowed us to think a little bit about encountering borderlands and how to be there, how to listen how to examine ourselves. And uh, Kurt, you've been a, a, a great uh, guide through that, th- through those initial thoughts. So thank you so much. I can give you a verse. All right. To, give Kurt, us a try verse. We should have a Bible verse. I think it's Matthew 13, 34. Don't fact check me. Okay, <laughs> go to your concordance. But I think in Matthew 13, 34, Jesus says... I will tell you what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is like a householder who reaches into his old treasure and brings out something new. That is very much another metaphor for my life over these 35 years in the Middle East. I reach into my old treasure to the the book that I, uh, through which I came to know Christ to the experiences that I have had since. I reach into my old treasure and I bring out something and in the light of new friendships and relationships, I find something new. That's, I think, the key to all of us growing. And that's the verse I'd like to leave you with. Great last word. Thank you. So uh, to conclude today, uh, we're going to play you a song uh, from Bob Dylan, Ring Them Bells, we've uh, played it before. Again, thank you very much for having us here. My name's Tim Carlos. I'm here with Casey Tolman, Scarlett Gudas. Ring them bells, ye heathens, from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuaries across the valleys and streams. And they keep them there wide. And the world's on its side. And time is running backwards. And so is the bride. St. Peter where the four winds blow Ring them bells with an iron hand So the people will know That it's rush hour now On the wheel and the plow And the sun is going down upon the sacred Sweet Martha for poor man's son Ring them bells so the world will know that God is one The shepherds have seen 
where the willows weep and the mansions are filled with lost sheep. Ring them bells for the blind and the deaf. Ring them bells for all those who are left. Ring them bells for the chosen few. Judge the many when the game is through. Ring them bells for the time that flies, for the child that cries when innocence dies. Ring them bells, Saint Catherine, from the top of the room. Ring them from the fortress for the lilies that bloom and the lies alarm and the fighting is strong and they're breaking down the distance between right and wrong. Thank you so much, Tim, Skyler, and Casey for leading us in music, and thank you, Kurt, for your word, and Jim for your thought-provoking questions. Um, it's really, really wonderful. As I was um, thinking about the night, um, my husband, James, was really sad to miss Kurt, um, because James lived in the Middle East for three years, but he he said, you know, Kurt, with the Ethiopian eunuch, he said, Kurt, he just keeps on getting in the chariot with folks in the story of the eunuch. And he's not afraid when he's invited in to sit and listen and to talk and to think through what it means to do life together and be in borderlands together and to go from deconstruction to construction. And James was just like, yeah, I think that that, he's just gotten in the chariot like Philip and listened and talked. And so thank you for sharing some of that wisdom of getting in the chariot. And as I'm thinking about borderlands and as we've engaged this Ethiopian eunuch text, sometimes it can feel overwhelming to even get into the chariot. But that's our call. And as I was thinking about it, the table for me is the space where I can come and better understand and discern what chariots in this world, in the borderlands of our lives, am I being invited into? Where am I being called to enter? Where am I, as I practice week after week, as we communally practice week after week the open table, what are these treasures that we're being invited to take out of our old treasure and something new be created? These answers aren't easy. It's not like we snap our finger and we know. But there's something powerful in our community centering itself around the praxis of open table, knowing that and through encounter with one another, through encounter with the Spirit, 
new things are being birthed, and we are better able to discern what chariots in the world we are called to be about and to enter. So let us come to our open table as we break bread and pour wine for one another or juice, share the peace and love of Christ with one another, knowing that just like Kurt has had the courage to show up, we too can find that same courage and strength to continue to show up wherever the Spirit leads. So come to the table now as we break bread and wine and then transition from the table to pizza for um, our lovely church, Ecclesia, church quarterly business meeting. And for those of you that are new to Emmaus Way, um, we serve one another, the bread and the juice. Um, and there is a host that will be situated in between the, our open table and snacks um, if you would like them to serve you. All are welcome. So come.